Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I want to encourage you, please, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12. And as you're turning here in the sanctuary, I welcome the rest of our church family and the Family Life Center to do the same. Turn with me in your Bibles. And if you're watching from some other remote place, you're tuning in online, welcome to this study. We are grateful that you would spend some time in the Word with us at Johns Creek. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 reads, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. May God now add a a blessing to the reading, and to the doing of his sacred word. Would you bow with me in prayer? Come, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire. Fill us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, nothing else matters. But if you are not with us, nothing else matters. Amen. So yesterday, there were some interesting football games around the country. Some very exciting ones, some not so surprising ones, and some with some drama that we didn't expect to see. Now, I might have been born at night, but it wasn't last night, so I'm not going to pick on any particular team, or I won't make it out of here alive, Diane. I will say that Dave Ramsey, however, there was a power T in the background of his video, but I'm just going to leave that out there right now. But what's always interesting to me is at the end of a game, regardless of how it plays out, the end of the game interview is always what's interesting. If the team didn't do so well, the coach has kind of a contrite spirit. Well, we're just going to have to tighten up the defense. We're going to look at the film again, so we can do come back out next week and do our best. You know, that spirit. If they won, if it was a particularly uh, commanding victory, they will sound and feel and present very differently yeah these boys are just yeah they're working their hearts out i hear these young guys coming here the first year and these seniors are providing really good leadership we're just really blessed and and we're going to go in here and and talk about next week and then it feels very different right 
But here is something that you will never hear a coach say to a team at the end of a good game ever. I mean, no great coach on any great team after any great win anywhere in college football will ever say to his players, hey, great job out there today, boys. Hey, uh, we'll see you next Saturday. Have a great week. I got to thinking this week about the daily regiment of a college football player in Division One. I. I did a little research. I came across this infographic that kind of helps us out. It's kind of generic. It describes, in general, a kind of daily rhythm. There you can see it on the screen. Now, every team will have its own nuance. It changes here and there, but basically, it looks a little like this. Five o'clock, wake up, eat breakfast, and pack for the day. Six o'clock to eight o'clock, two hours of strength and conditioning. 8.30, team meeting to review the practice schedule. Well, I thought we just had practice for two hours, but clearly there's more to come. 8.30, shower and get to class. 9 o'clock till 2 o'clock, lunch and class. Because, oh yeah, by the way, you're also students. 2 o'clock, watch the game film. 2.30, get taped up before practice. 3.30, for two and a half hours, practice with the team. 6 o'clock, shower and more training. 7 o'clock, eat dinner. 7.30 to 9.30, academic support, some tutoring, some help. 9.30 till midnight, finish up your homework and go to sleep. And that is Monday. And then it gets rinsed and repeated Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Clearly, they take Sundays off because you got to be in Sunday school at 9.45. But that is a rhythm. And the truth is, game day is only as entertaining and thrilling and exhilarating and exciting as these players' commitment to a weekly, daily, hourly, moment-by-moment discipline that gets them ready to walk out on the field on Saturday. And thus it is with worship. When you and I gather here, when Christians gather, when the Lord's church gathers in a thousand variety of ways, a thousand expressions all across the world from rock-hewn underground churches in Ethiopia to cathedrals in Europe to thatch huts in South America to 6910 McGinnis Ferry Road in two venues, when we gather together as the body of Christ, we are intended to be a gathering in which what we do in here is the, is the culmination of all of the worship that has already been underway all week long in the hearts and, and in the minds of individual worshipers. And when I say the culmination of all of the worship that's been happening all through the week, I mean every Bible study and every prayer and every time of quiet study and silence every contemplative walk every moment of meditation that you make is all in readiness for this moment and not just that but other worshipful moments too like every act of compassion and mercy every act of service and sacrifice and generosity and 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 love 
Even every encounter that we have, Monday through Saturday, every encounter in which we are either filled with joy or we are wounded beyond comprehension, every moment of celebration and every seemingly insurmountable crisis is all making us ready for this moment. Every attempt that you make with other people to extend forgiveness, every attempt that you make to forgive a debtor and love an enemy, every attempt that you make through the week to join with God in the ongoing reconciliation of this broken world, it's all worship. And every moment of those worshipful encounters that you and I deliberately enter into like a discipline, like a, like a practice, like practice tapes and, and getting ready for, for, for this big event on the weekend, it all readies us, it gets us ready to gather in here and we bundle all of those human interactions and we lift them up before the one and only one who can do anything about any of it. That's worship. Worship is game day for the church. And I'm not talking about a game day in which we gather in here and we, we sit in the stands and we watch whatever's happening on the field. I'm talking about you are the field. I'm talking about when we gather in here for worship, you and I bring every moment of preparation and pain, every moment of heartache and hope, and we, we bring it in this hour of worship to show in demonstration of our great love, the one and only one who is sitting in the stands. That's worship. So my question for you, the question for me today, is how is your midweek worship training going? What are the deliberate practices and disciplines that you do on a weekly, daily, hourly, moment-by-moment -moment basis that prepares you for this moment here. Because I'm, I'm going to, in, in, in love, going to drop a truth bomb on all of us. So prepare for the shrapnel of truth to hit us. Worship will only be as meaningful for you as your preparation for it. Worship will only be as meaningful for you as your preparation for it. Listen, beloved, I have been in thousands of worship services throughout my journey with Christ. Thousands of worship services. And I've been in every kind of venue you can imagine with every kind of style. And I can tell you this, this is a verifiable fact. The most lifeless worship services that I've ever been in, the most dull drag, the, the, the most joyless worship services I've ever felt or been a part of are not the ones where the preacher was dull and the choir may have sung off key. And man, there were plenty of those, I can tell you. But they were the ones in which there was nothing expected when they got here. They were the services in which there was very little or no anticipation or preparation or heightened expectancy about the possibility of confronting the maker of all things. But I have been in some. I have been in some where there was such an eager hope for what could happen. 
There was such a preparation all through the week and anticipate leaning into the week that when we got there, we couldn't stand to wait any longer to confront something bigger than us, to be provoked in the imagination, to be confronted by the God of the universe. And on those days, I didn't want to leave. You know, it's possible. But what if the whole body, what if the whole body really worshipped? What if the whole body of Christ in the world were so attentive, deliberately attentive to those moments through the week that they bundled them up, the hope and the hurt, all of the longing that, and the long-suffering that they bring, and we bring it here before the... What would it look like? I suggest to you today that it requires two major fundamental shifts in order for worship to be what it absolutely can be for the body of Christ, for worship to be electric and alive and exuberant and filled with so much hope that you just don't want to go, 12 o'clock comes and you're like, no, Sean, keep it coming, we want more. Two fundamental shifts that must happen. The first is a shift in the way we view it all. The second is a shift in the way we do it all. A shift in the way we view it all and a shift in the way that we do it all. First, a shift in the way we view it all. So this passage that we read a moment ago from the Apostle Paul, you know that it's a summons, don't you? It's a calling, it's a summons for us to view everything differently. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, and I love what another translation says, I beseech you. I challenge you to use the word beseech when you're at the restaurant after church today. The server comes up and says, can I take your, I beseech you to bring me some bread and butter. I appeal to you with deep passion, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, it's easy if we're not careful for us to gloss right over that last phrase. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do you realize what a seismic shift this was in the way that Paul viewed everything? For generations, the only way to know God and to worship God and to be connected in, in covenantal relationship with God was through animal sacrifice in the temple. You would bring a bull or a goat or a lamb or a, a pigeon or a turtle dove and you would give it to the priest and they would sacrifice it. They would kill it, slaughter it as an expression of their deep anguish and repentance for how they had broken relationship with God. It's almost as if to say, I have slain the beautiful thing that you created with us and I am sorry and I'm here to demonstrate my deep desire to make amends, to make peace with you. That's how it happened for generations upon generations. But then Paul says, no, but now because Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross once for all time and once for all people and once for all sin, it means there is no longer anymore a need for an animal to die and sacrifice on behalf of you. It's as if the cross itself was saying, 
on behalf of all humanity, we are guilty. But the cross was also saying on behalf of all divinity, you are forgiven. Peace has been made through the blood of the cross. And now, Paul says, because that's true, it provides you the opportunity to worship God not through the deathly sacrifice of an animal, but through the living sacrifice of your everyday existence, which means you can now order your life in such a way that every waking moment is infused with the possibility of holy awareness that it's possible to be so awake to the presence of God around you that every moment, every conversation, every crisis, every celebration is an opportunity for worship. That's being a living sacrifice. It's as if you can wake up in the morning and order your life in a way that says, I belong to you and I love and long for you and I am going to order the events of this day to demonstrate in a living way how much I, I adore, adore you. That's being a living sacrifice. But here's the challenge. You and I tend to divide what we think is secular in one part of our life and sacred in another part of our life. We assume there's a division between secular things and sacred things. But it is a false division. Everything belongs to the Lord and everything that the Lord has touched has been made Sacred is an illusion to think that God is in some space, but God is not in some other space. God is in every subatomic particle coursing through the universe, including you. Psalm 24, verse 1, reads this way. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, every subatomic particle. The, the, the world and all who live in it. 1 Corinthians 6 goes on to say something is magnificent here, especially in light of what we just said about the temple and sacrifice. Paul says, look, don't you get it? He says, do you not know your body, your physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have from God and that you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. In other words, you are the temple you are the host, the host to the divine presence and action of God. So live like it. You and I can live with that level of holy awareness all the time. Because the truth is, nothing is secular. Michael Quast is an author who wrote this uh, amazing book, a collection of prayers that he cleverly entitled Prayers. <laughs> and this is what he has to say about these things. If only we knew how to look at life as God sees it, we would realize that nothing is secular in the world, that everything contributes to the building up of the kingdom of God. If we knew how to look at life through God's eyes, we would see it as innumerable tokens of the love of the Creator seeking the love of His creatures. If we knew how to listen to God, if we knew how to look around us, we, our, our whole life would become a prayer. Could anything be more beautiful? 
So in this book, he, he makes some observations and he, and he writes some prayers about ordinary things. He'll come across and he'll see some things like, oh, I don't know, like a telephone, a barbed wire fence, a brick, a baby. And he stops long enough to consider the possibility that the divine presence of, and action of God is all in it and all around it. And he turns it into a prayer. In one of his prayers, it's entitled, The Prayer Before a $20 Bill. He came across a $20 bill and he began to think about all the places where this bill has been. And with a holy awareness that nothing is secular, but Christ is in all and above all and before all, as Colossians says, he writes this prayer. He says, Lord, see this bill? It frightens me. You know its secrets. You know its history. How heavy it is. It, it, it scares me, for it cannot speak. It will never tell all that it hides in its creases. It will never reveal all the struggles and the efforts it represents, all the disillusionment and the slighted dignity it's stained. It's stained with sweat and blood. It's laden with all the weight of the human toil which makes its worth. It's heavy. It's heavy, Lord. It fills me with awe. It frightens me. It, it has death on its conscience. All the poor fellows who killed themselves for it, to possess it for just a few hours, to have it have through it a little pleasure, a little joy, a little life. Through how many hands has it passed, Lord, and what has it done in the course of its long, silent journeys? It has offered white roses to the radiant fiancé. It's paid for the baptismal party. It's fed the rosy-cheeked baby. It has provided bread for the family table. Because of it, there was laughing among the young and joy among the elders. It's paid for the saving visit of the doctor. It has bought the book that taught the student. It has clothed the naked and fed the hungry. But it has sent the letter breaking the engagement. It has paid for the child trafficked for sex. It has bought the liquor that made the alcoholic. It has produced the movie Unfit for Children and has recorded the indecent song. It has broken the morals of the teenager and made of the adult a thief. It has bought for a few hours the body of a woman. It has bought the weapons of war, or paid for the weapons of war and the wood of the coffin. Oh Lord, I offer you this bill with its joyous mysteries, its sorrowful mysteries. I thank you for all the life and joy it's given. I ask for your forgiveness for all the harm it has done. But above all, Lord, I offer it to you as a symbol of the labors of humankind, indestructible money, which tomorrow will be changed into your eternal life. That's just a $20 bill. Or is it a cathedral inviting worship? The worship of the God of the ages. Can you imagine what would happen if you and I, when we showed up to church every Sunday, 
were to bring that kind of attentiveness and preparation. Can you imagine what would happen if we stayed that aware and that awake to the possibility that every square inch of the ground upon which we walk is inviting us to worship? Elizabeth Barrett Browning, my favorite quote from her, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. We can see all of life, every relationship, every encounter, every confrontation, every opportunity. We can see all of life as sacred ground of fire with God or we can just pluck blackberries. Which will it be? So what do you do if you want to view it all differently? Well, that leads us to the next and last movement of this sermon. Yes, Paul said you are, you are called to do something. You're called to have a transformed way of seeing the world. Yes, we're called to view it all differently, but we're also called to do it all differently. The way we do it all must shift. What do I mean by that? In the second verse of this passage that we're studying, this is what Paul said. Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, this world that would have you believe there are some things that are secular and some things that are sacred. Do not be conformed to this world that would have you believe that there are some people who are secular and some people who are sacred. Do not be conformed to this world that would have you think that God is in some space and, and not in some other space. But be transformed, morphed, changed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He's calling us to remain awake. But I, I, I want to argue with Paul a little bit here and tell you, you can't just decide to see everything differently. Even if you want to view it all differently and start seeing the presence of God emerging in all realms of life, you can't just wake up and say, I, I think I'm going to start seeing God everywhere. It comes as a result or as a fruit of deliberate practices, a, a weekly, daily, hourly, moment-by-moment -moment regiment of seeking after Him. It takes work to do it all differently. It takes work to see it all, view it all differently. Richard Rohr, one of my greatest instructors in life, says, we don't think our way into new ways of behaving. We behave our way into new ways of thinking. Just leave that up there for just a moment in case you want to just drink that in. You may want to tweet that out, but think one way or another. We don't think our way into new ways of behaving we behave our way into new ways of thinking and any of our friends in addiction recovery will tell you the same it's, it's not about I think I'm just going to stop doing the practice that was destruct destructive for me it's no I'm not just not going to I'm not just going to stop doing the thing that was destructive I'm going to start a rhythm of a reordered life every moment of the day filled with accountability such that the thing no longer has power over me you don't think your way into new ways of behaving. You behave your way into new ways of thinking. Can I just tell you what it could look like? It's going to sound silly. 
But sometimes the sacred is veiled in the silly. When you wake up in the morning, what's the very first thing you do? The very first thing that I do is breathe. I recommend it. Before I get out of bed, before my feet touch the ground, I deliberately prop up a little bit and just breathe. And as I breathe, my wordless prayer is, I recognize it was you who gave me my first breath, and here you are again giving me my first breath of my awakened day. Breathe through me. And then I reach back to the ancient practice of the Jesus prayer. Spirit of Christ, breathe through me today. Spirit of Christ, breathe through me today. Then I get up. And I don't know about you, but the first thing I have to do when I get up is I have to reach for my glasses because I can't see anything if I don't. Amen? You may be putting in contacts. You may be putting on some specs. But as I put them on, what would happen if you put on your eyes in the morning and as you did, why couldn't it be the ritual of God? I recognize that I have a tendency to see everything distorted. I have a tendency to blur everything in my life. And I'm asking for your eyes today that I may see whoever's standing in front of me as not just a customer or a colleague or a competitor, but maybe you can help me to see them as one more beautiful expression of your holy image standing right in front of me. Show me how to see today. And what if you went to the shower, and I recommend... You go to the shower once in a while. And you turn the shower on, and as you get in the shower, why couldn't you, as you are preparing for your day, think to yourself, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Cleanse my mind. Condition my thoughts so that they are Christly thoughts. As I wash my hands Lord, I pray that you would show me what to do today to serve you. As I wash my feet, show me where to go so that I can bump in to your presence already active in somebody's life. As you get out and go on about your day, I'm going to confess to you that one of the deepest and most glorious gifts of God is Q-tip cotton swabs. Why couldn't you? And, and you know what? I so love That's the best part of my morning. If I could, I would do it like a cartoon where you put a towel in one ear, you know, and you just kind of, why couldn't you say as you were doing this, just imagine, God, I recognize you are not going to thunder your voice over me today and you likely will not blow a trumpet when you're trying to speak to me because all through sacred scripture you have whispered. Tune the ears of my heart that I may hear your whisper of wisdom. And as you brush your teeth, and I recommend that you brush your teeth, why couldn't you think about James and how James said, how great a forest is set ablaze by a tiny spark and the tongue is a tiny spark. Lord, I have the capacity with my tongue this day to set a fire May my words be words that bring life and not destruction. May the water that proceeds from my words be fresh water and not brackish water. And as you go on about your day and you're tying your shoes, you're putting on your kicks for the day, why couldn't you remember the 
the wisdom that was spoken. The steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord, so order my steps in your word today. Lord, order my steps in your word. And I've not even mentioned the things that you would typically do to prepare for worship. I've not mentioned reading scripture or sitting in meditation. I've not mentioned silent walks with God. I'm just talking about getting dressed. But what if the rhythm of your life were to change, to shift? What if it shifted everything you do so that it shifted everything that you view? If you start and end your day this way, if you end your day with a journal and say, where did I see God alive today? Then guess what happens after a few weeks? In the morning when you wake up, you know that that night you're going to be asking yourself, where did I see God? So guess what you're going to do? You're going to look for God. And then as you look and run into God headlong in the normal, ordinary events of your life, it will become practice for the shared life that we gather here to lift up in one common voice of praise. Dr. Fred Craddock was one of the greatest preachers of all time. He instructed preachers for generations. He literally wrote the book on preaching. In fact, I'm teaching a course in preaching at the seminary starting in January, and his book is going to be required reading for my students because the man knew what he was doing, but he tells the story of the truth that he had never gone to church in a real church until he was about eight or nine years old. They lived in West Tennessee, a very rural part of the, of, the, of the state, and they lived so far away from any real church that he never even saw the inside of a real church until he was an older child. But every Saturday, neighbors would come over to his house. His mother would make him dress up in his finest clothes, which in his memory were the uncomfortable stiff clothes for an eight-year-old boy to have to wear. And they would sit in the living room. One of the neighbors had a harmonica. Another neighbor had an old hymns book called Old Hymns Number no. 2. And every Saturday night they would sing, When the roll is called up yonder, Amazing grace in the garden. And one, one night he said to his mother as an eight-year-old, kind of fidgeting in those stiff, uncomfortable clothes, going through this routine every week, Mama, why, why do we do all this? And she said, because one day we'll live close enough to go to a real church so we're practicing. He said, we practiced going to church for years before I ever saw one. One of the couples that came over every Saturday night was Will and Mary Hunt, uh, an African-American couple uh, in their late 80s. They sat there in the middle of the floor with them and worshipped every Saturday night. One day, young Craddock said to old Will, Will, you ever, you ever been to a real church? And Will said, oh, yeah. Oh, hundreds of them. Oh, what's, it, what's it like? Oh, it's the most miraculous, stupendous, wonderful thing you've ever seen, boy. You'll have to go one day. But when you go, don't look on the outside. You got to go inside. Because don't forget, all of God's best things 
come in disguise. When you go inside, he said, oh boy, the, the, the ceiling is all this deep blue and there's like a, like a thousand stars shining down like, like diamonds. And there's this, oh, there's this angel choir, boy. And they join with, with the church choir and you're transported, son, you're transported. A few months after that, old Will died. And Fred and his mother made the long trip to the real church where the funeral was to be held. He walked up to the outside of the church and it was the first one this great preacher of preachers had ever seen. It was an old clapboard white building with paint chipping on the outside. The porch was kind of kind of tilted because the, the rock and cement were tipping away and had settled underneath the ground there where it was planted. And it was, they went inside and he saw the, the pews, some of which had chips missing and they rocked because one leg might have been a little shorter than the rest. And he looked around and he saw there was no, there was no blue sky. There's no angel quiet, no stars shining down like diamonds. And he remembers saying to himself as an eight-year-old boy, I, oh, Will, you've messed me up on all this. He said he sat there for a while. They handed out fans, opened up the windows. He said, but before long, the choir started humming. And then the, the congregation started swaying. And the mourners started mourning and the prayers started praying. And before long, with all the voices in, in the room lifted, he, he lifted his eyes and he said, lo and behold, huh, the sky was all blue. And there was like a thousand stars shining down like, like diamonds and, and bands of angels swept in to sing will to his rest. So, I'll see you here next week. What will you be ready to see? Let's pray. Most loving and glorious God, we yield before the power of your presence. And we confess that we barely recognize it most of the time. But our humble prayer to you this day is that you would create a shift in us, that we may shift how we view it all, shift how we do it all, so that we may recognize that every moment of every day, every square inch of this terrestrial sod is calling us to worship you. Even now, Lord, there may be one in this family of faith whose heart is burning with desire to draw closer to you. Would you give them the courage to respond to it, to yield to it, 
until they see skies of blue and stars like diamonds. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.